0: In January of 2018, the Dutch Defense Safety Inspection Agency launched an investigation about an F-16 fighter jet that had actually sustained damage from 20-millimeter cannon fire, which sounds like it could be the beginnings of World War III. I'm Dutch. When I hear about the Dutch in the news, I always get excited. Sadly, it's often stuff like this. You see, The problem is the damage came from the plane's own machine guns. The aircraft is equipped with, get this, Vulcan Gatling guns. What kind of nerd named that? The Vulcan Gatling gun. It can fire over 6,000 rounds per minute, and they can travel at a velocity of 3,450 feet per second. The issue is, though, as the plane is flying, the jet through the air, it can go much faster than that. So seemingly, this guy during a training exercise fired his, his machine guns, hit the throttle, and caught up to and ran into his own machine gun fire. How incredibly bizarre. How do you, in a plane with guns fixed on it, shoot yourself? Well, the same sort of thing happens here in Esther chapter 7. We have seen how well this wicked man Haman has set himself up. He has been climbing the ladder. He is vanquishing his foes. He is endearing himself to the king. And now he is going to wind up somehow shooting himself in the foot and worse. We think of Proverbs twenty six, twenty seven when we read passages like this, which says, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Well, Haman has started his stone rolling, and it is going to come back. He's going to run away like Indiana Jones, but he's going to get squished like Weird Al in the uh, parody of that movie. Now, the best stories, of course, have great reversals in them. It gives us a big swell, and then it drops us, or the other way around. You start to fall, and then you're steadied. You think of something like Indiana Jones. He's, He's beat up, he's losing, all hope is lost, and then, boom, he turns it around. James Bond does the same thing. The Avengers... Oh my goodness, we can't possibly win, and then the great reversal happens. The same thing happens in romantic comedies or other kind of chick flicks and that sort of thing where it looks like the couple's going to break up. In the end of the second act, you can set your watch by, I'm going to go you know, get some more popcorn and, and, and uh, use the bathroom during the breakup scene, and then I'll be back before they get back together at the end. Well, this story of Esther is perhaps the greatest story of reversals because it's not just one it's a number of them they're ironic reversals they're dramatic reversals and it is for us a beautiful picture of the gospel which is coming the greatest reversal of all time i have to apologize to you at the outset here for doing the preacher thing of alliteration this text begs for it and i have to do it i'm going to tell you about the request the reveal and the reversal as we look at the text this morning. But first, the recap, where we stand in Esther. And of course, we're you know, more than halfway through the book. So this is going to uh, be very broad strokes. But it began, of course, with the queen being deposed because the king is a jerk. He kicks his queen out. He goes away to war. And when he comes back, he's like, oh, I miss my queen. I guess I need a new one. He has bad advisors who tell him, let's have a contest where all the beautiful young women from all over the Persian Empire are brought to you and you choose the next queen. And what happens is he chooses a Jewish woman named Esther. Her cousin, Mordecai, also her adoptive father, is a guard in the palace, what's called the Citadel of Susa. And he also is a faithful servant of the king and they seem to fall in line with their rules uh, quite readily. He then has this big moment where he catches wind of a plot to murder the king and Mordecai exposes it, but nothing is done for him. Instead, this awful guy Haman is raised to power, kind of the right hand man of the king to the point where he gets the king's signet ring to put on his finger and he can pretty much rubber stamp anything he wants and it has the authority of the law of the Medes and the Persians, which once established cannot be changed. One day, Haman is walking out through the gate. There Mordecai is standing and everybody falls down. They tremble before him and bow before him and make a big show of it. And he feels, Haman feels great until he notices that one guy. Mordecai won't bow before me. He won't tremble before me. I hate him so much. He does a little digging and finds out he's Jewish. Even worse, because Haman is a descendant of this guy named King Agag, an Amalekite. And there was a long-standing feud between that king and King Saul, whom Mordecai is a descendant of. So now we've got this just millennia-old squad feud going on in the court, and Haman makes a decision, I'm going to squash this once and for all by squashing him and all his people. And he rolls some dice and does some magic and divination and determines in the 11th month of this year... I am going to put to death all of the Jews in all of Persia. Takes the king's ring, this cool, okay, stamps it. When Esther catches wind of this, Mordecai says to her, you've got to do something, you're our only hope. You are sitting on the throne, and who knows, maybe God put you right there for such a time as this. She tells everyone, fast with me. For days they fast, they pray, and she invites both the king and uh, Haman to a banquet There we might expect her to make the big ask, would you please spare me and my people and maybe punish this guy? But she doesn't. She says, here's my request. He says, all right, whatever it is, up to half my kingdom. She says, my request is that you would come to another banquet that I'm throwing tomorrow. And there I will ask you for what I really want. Haman leaves feeling like he's on top of the world until once again, he sees Mordecai not bowing to him and he gets all mad once again. He goes home and his wife says here's here's an idea kill him early have a gallows built 75 feet tall make a big show of it then tomorrow morning go in say to the king rubber stamp let's kill this guy execute him and then you'll be able to enjoy yourself at the feast at the banquet and so he says that is a great idea all night they build the gallows that night the king can't sleep he has insomnia And so he says, when I can't sleep, I like to hear the royal records read to me. And he calls a servant in who starts reading the royal records. And he gets to the point where Mordecai had saved his life five years earlier. And he says, what was done for this man, Mordecai? I forgot that that was a big deal. And he says, nothing was done for him. And the king says, this has got to be rectified. This is terrible. Go and see if there's anyone in my court right now. I need some advice. I need some advisors. The eunuch goes out and says, Haman is here. Haman has arrived to say, let's kill Mordecai. Let's make a big deal out of his death. So he walks in. He's again feeling on top of the world. He's gotten over his his slump. And the king says to him, what should be done for the man that the king desires to honor? And Haman thinks inside of his head, who could he mean but me? And he says, well, here's what you ought to do. Put on him a robe that the king has worn. You you put him on a horse the king has ridden, you put a crown, a a royal headdress on the horse, you take one of your greatest nobles to lead that horse around with the guy on the back of the horse saying, this is the man whom the king desires to honor. Go all around the city like that, that should do the trick. And the king says, what you have just said, go and do for Mordecai the Jew, leave nothing out. Humiliating! Humiliating! He wanted to kill this guy today, and now instead he's having to lead him around the city, singing his praises, showing him to be royal and noble in nature. He gets back and he tells his family about it, and he's been surrounded by yes men and people who support him unconditionally all this time, and even they say, it sounds like you're kind of sunk. And if this guy Mordecai is of the people of God, in fact, this is how it ends in uh, the end of, of chapter six with verse 14, his wife Zeresh says to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And then the last verse of that chapter is, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, the exciting climax. It's been building for some time. This is a story that takes its time, masterfully written. Begins with the request. As they're gathered together after the feast, drinking wine, reclining in the eastern fashion, once again, for the third time now, King Ahasuerus says to her, what is your wish? What is your request? If you'll just ask, I'll say yes, whatever it is. He is just smitten with this woman still and he wants to give her nice things and she says to him what is my wish what is my request I'll tell you grant me my life for my wish and my people for my request you have to imagine at that point you could hear a pin drop or at least hear the king's jaw drop right this is a strange request Usually what he's used to is people saying, well, would you build a beautiful garden, hanging gardens in my honor and put my name on them? Or or would you elevate a friend or relative of mine to a position of great wealth and prominence? But no, instead, she says, I and all my people have been sold into slavery. Or rather, not even into slavery, but into death. And you are our only hope. Now, she even says to him, if we had only been sold into slavery, I wouldn't have bothered you with it. Some have suggested maybe this is because she knows the Jews have already been slaves in a foreign land and God delivered them from it and so she knows he would do it again. Perhaps it's because she's already a slave in a sense. She's not free to leave the harem and leave the palace and go do what she wants. Or I think she may just be playing up the enormity of the threat to her people, saying I wouldn't have bothered you with us being Sold into slavery, but compared to that, this is enormous. This makes that look insignificant. This is major hyperbole, I think. It grabs the king's attention and has exactly the intended effect. Now, there is a little uh, section of verse here that's hard to interpret, and I like to address those when we get to them rather than gloss over them. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 4, Uh, We've been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been merely sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, but our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. When I've read that, I've, I've often struggled to understand exactly what it says. I've looked at it in the Hebrew. I've read a lot of different understandings, interpretations of what this might mean. At the end of the day, my understanding is she knows how much money is going to be paid into the royal treasury by Haman. And she's saying, even if you were paid that much for us to be sold into slavery, you'd be losing out. It would be a bad deal. But even then, I wouldn't have bothered you. Because this isn't just you losing money, you losing subjects from freedom to slavery. This is an entire people, my people and myself being killed and annihilated and destroyed. And she uses that language. That's the exact language of the royal edict Haman had drawn up. On this particular day, everyone will be not only allowed, but commanded to kill, to annihilate, and to destroy the Jewish people. So she's being very specific in that way, and yet she's also still being a little coy here. I want you to notice this. She doesn't just drop all the information at once. She's being incredibly wise. I don't think she's being politic. I don't think she's, I don't think she's being wishy-washy. I think she's being very wise and very discerning. She does not mention yet that her people are the Jewish people, because perhaps the king already knows that he himself approved of that plan. Maybe he doesn't, though, because when Haman brought him the plan, he didn't name them. He just said, there's a people out there that are bad news. Of course, she doesn't say that ultimately it was Ahasuerus himself who sold them out to be killed when he agreed to accept Mordecai's infusion of cash into his treasury, she had hidden her identity in chapter 2, concealed her agenda in chapter 5, but even here she carefully and wisely and incrementally reveals the truth a bit at a time. So that's the request. Then comes the reveal. This is a scene where everyone and everything is unmasked right? Everything's revealed for what it is. Esther is revealed to be a Jewish woman. Haman is revealed to be an enemy of the queen and her people. It's like when Hercule Poirot will gather all the suspects together in the parlor or something and explain one by one why each person can't be the killer until there's only one left. Of course, in this scene, there's only one other guy, so it's a rather short one. She says the person who's going to do this is right here. Now, the king, when he hears that someone has had the gall to come after his wife, his queen, and her people, he asks three questions in rapid succession. Who is he? Where is he? And who would dare to do this? We could add a fourth question. How can anyone be as clueless as you are, King Ahasuerus? You and your buddy here are the ones who have done this. It reminds me quite a bit of uh, the prophet Nathan and King David. When he describes this situation, and David gets so very angry and says, Who would dare do that? And he says, Oh, you are the man, King. You are the man. But she doesn't do that. She doesn't point her finger at him. Again, she's being wise about this. The lives of the people hang in the balance. And after this patient, careful plan, dancing around the issue and setting up all the pieces just so, over time, not rushing things, she here goes in for the kill, pointing directly at her husband's chief advisor and identifying him, not as the great noble Haman, but as the enemy, the foe, wicked Haman, she calls him. Not just my enemy, my adversary, but the enemy, the adversary, almost painting him as Satan himself himself. And again, for someone to plot the queen's death was treason and considered a plot against the king himself. And that is something that Ahasuerus, like all kings, took very seriously. Again, we think of the wisdom literature, Proverbs 12, 13, an evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous escapes from trouble. Well, this guy's not going to escape because he is an evil man. Haman falls down and begins to beg for his life, but here's the weird part. Ahasuerus gets up and walks out. What are you doing? He goes off into the garden in a rage, it says. Why? Some have suggested he went out to calm down, like count to 10 before you execute anybody. That would be a first for him. I don't think that's the case. I don't think he's going out trying to decide what the proper punishment is. Like, remember when Judge Wapner would be like, I'm gonna go into my chambers and I'll be back in a minute and tell you my decision. He knows he's gonna kill this guy. I think that what's going on here is that he doesn't know what else to do. He's relied so heavily on all of his advisors to do all of his thinking for him and make all the tough decisions throughout this entire book to the point of, kind of putting it all on the shoulders of one man, that now that that man is revealed to be an enemy, he is completely paralyzed with indecision. And he just gets up and he leaves. He's got to get some air, clear his head, whatever. And this is when we get to the third movement of this chapter, the reversal, the great reversal. And these last reversals in the book of Esther are the most dramatic and really the most satisfying, I would say. This man who would wipe out the entire Jewish nation because he was slighted by one person who wouldn't bow before him is now begging the Jewish queen for his own life. Who has the power now? God has used the events even of that morning where he was humiliated to prepare Haman's heart and kind of crush his pride and now Esther just rolls right over him. There there are steps here, incremental steps in Haman's humiliation. This isn't one big reversal all at once. It's blow after blow after blow until the big one. First, Mordecai gets the honor that Haman thought was reserved for him, right? Then Haman gets the shame he had been reserving for Mordecai. And all of this started because, in his words, that Jew Mordecai, and if that sounds racist, it's because it is, he wouldn't bow down, he wouldn't tremble before me. And literally, the last thing Haman does before he's put to death is throw himself down before Mordecai's daughter Esther, a Jew, and tremble before her. And that's not even the end. It gets even worse for Haman. I think what we see here is a literal fulfillment of what his wife had said to him. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overthrow him, but will surely fall before him. He's going to fall before him. He's going to fall before Esther. He is going to be further humiliated. God lifts up the humble and humbles the proud. And we see both of those things happening very much, very clearly in the book of Esther. Now the king comes back in and his problem, his conundrum is solved for him. He does have to decide how to deal with this whole thing while saving face especially in the light of the fact that the laws of the Medes and the Persians cannot be changed. He can't just roll the thing back. He's got to have something to move forward in a different direction. And he gets it immediately because he walks in and he finds Haman having kind of thrown himself sort of at the feet of Esther, but she's reclining in a couch eating. That's the standard thing to do, drinking. And he's sort of halfway on top of her and he looks and says, are you kidding me? I come in here holding your life in my hands and find you assaulting my wife in my own home, in my own presence, that's it, you're done. This is perhaps the most shameful thing that could happen to Haman. And the shame continues. We see at the end of verse eight, as the word came from the king, the eunuchs, the servants came and covered Haman's face. Biblically speaking, this expresses shame for a shameful act. Jeremiah 51, 51, we are put to shame for we have heard reproach. Dishonor has covered our face for foreigners have come into the holy places of the Lord's house. In the previous chapter, after he had had to do all the running around and declaring Mordecai to be great, Haman had covered his own face. People still do this today when someone's arrested for something particularly awful or grievous or stupid and then they do the kind of walk of shame in handcuffs into the the cop car. If there's a bunch of reporters there, What like a sweatshirt or something over their face to hide their shame, to hide them. They don't want their eyes to be on TV all red and puffy and, and defeated. And so he hides his face, and now they are covering his face for him. Almost like everyone in the room knows, this is all that's left for you. The final and ultimate shame that comes when you turn against a great Persian king. What I think is so ironic... An irony among ironies is that Haman was all about, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. And in his last moments, he's like, don't look at me. Because God has now turned the tables. He is humbling the proud. The one who would attempt to get on a stool and and vault himself up into the presence of God is knocked down, as is always the case. In verse 9, we see another irony, I believe. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance, said, Moreover, the gallows, those gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. It's possible, and from the the Hebrew, it seems like he's even pointing at these gallows as they speak. It's possible that if, if Haman hadn't built these things so large as some kind of indicator of something about his greatness, I don't know, that it would be very likely they hadn't been able to look and see them and have this idea, but they do. And his death then becomes more imbued with shame than his life ever was with honor. And of course, finally, good for him, Ahasuerus makes a decision all by himself and says, execute this man on his own gallows in verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that they had prepared for Mordecai, Then the wrath of the king abated. And this is the greatest irony of the whole book. A man who built gallows to try and put to death the servant of the Lord killed on his very own gallows, bringing to mind the book of Proverbs. Falling into his own pit, being squashed by his own rock. Or Proverbs 14.35 also makes us think of this contrast between Esther and Haman. A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor. But his wrath falls on one who deals shamefully. He has acted shamefully, and the king's wrath is upon him. The consummation of the wrath being this hanging. Now, we've spoken before, again, about how the Persian method of hanging is probably impaling rather than hanging uh, by a a rope from the neck. Whatever the case, it involves a tree, a large pole. In fact, that's the, the root meaning here of this word. And so he is under a curse, according to Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is anyone hanging from a tree. And so this man who lived for honor and, of course, abandoned it in his last moments, no longer is he saying, I'm all about honor and respect and dignity. He's down on his knees weeping and and begging for his life, is no longer even in the neighborhood of honor. This is, for us, a picture of of redemption. And you might say, whoa, I missed a step there. That seems like quite a leap. Well, think of this. Esther, as she she explains the situation of her people to the king, is clearly looking for redemption. She leads with, my people and I have been sold. In the ancient world, when you've been sold, your only hope was to then be redeemed. For someone to come and redeem you. In fact, the whole book of, of Ruth is about these people sold by the debt of a a dead man and now they need a kinsman redeemer to come and rescue them. Well, she is looking for redemption. We also need redemption. We have sold ourselves into slavery to sin and death. That is the message of the Scriptures. The unified message. And ultimately, well, it is sort of satisfying when you read about this, this dirtbag guy doing all this awful, mean stuff. And then he gets his just desserts. As we've emphasized throughout the book of Esther, when we we apply it to our lives, we have to ask the question, who among us does not deserve Haman's fate? Not only his fate, but more, since we have betrayed an infinitely greater king by our sin. Who among us does not deserve to eternally be upon the tree of God's wrath, the cross itself? But we escape that we are redeemed from that by trusting in the great intercessor. Believing in the words of Galatians three thirteen and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And then we can together affirm and celebrate with the Apostle that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the ultimate reversal, the one foreshadowed by all the smaller reversals in the book of Esther what we call the great exchange. That when Christ came, the only sinless one to ever live and died a sinner's death and became sin itself, became a curse for us, we receive in exchange His righteousness. There has never been a greater reversal. We see in, in this picture of uh, absolute hopelessness The time is coming. We know the day. We know where the Purim have lied. We we know when the Jews will be killed and the Jewish people cry out and say, Esther, you need to go to the king. You need to make intercession. We see a picture there, a foreshadowing of what Christ would do for us. I think we also see it in the two pleas for life in this chapter. We have both Esther pleading for her own life and the life of her people, and then Haman selfishly pleading for his own life when he has indeed earned a death sentence. we Remember the, the words of Jesus Christ when he said, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. On that day will be uncovered. That will be the big reveal when the secrets of all hearts are revealed. Contrast that with those who come to Jesus Christ for redemption now. Those to whom he says, I will in no wise cast you out. I never knew you, he will say to those who come to him after after the judgment has been meted out. I never knew you. Ahasuerus did not really know Haman, even though they were together, they drank together, we read. Haman had his ear and his signet ring and did despicable things in the king's name. And there will be many who said, yes, I'm with that God, I'm with Jesus. And they've even done despicable things in his name. And yet he will say, I never knew you on the last day. Those who think they have worked out their plans against God, against his will, against his law, against their 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 Disdain for God's people like Haman and, and others like him will be exposed, we read in the scriptures, and punished. Remember the, the Jonathan Edwards sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which I kind of threw at you not too long ago and, and, and kind of confused a lot of people. Almost every natural man that hears of hell, Edwards writes, flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done and what he is now doing or what he intends to do. Everyone lays out matters in his own mind how he shall avoid damnation and flatters himself that he contrives well for himself and that his schemes won't fail. But Jesus promises in Luke chapter 12, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. We see in in these two different approaches to condemnation, a picture of those who come to Jesus in repentance, in faith, and those who turn away. And on the last day say, but Lord, Lord. Now, I want to also move on to talking about a little application here before we close for the church ourselves. Because this story, like all of the Old Testament, like all of the Bible, is indeed about Jesus, even though Jesus isn't mentioned in the book of Esther. And God, in fact, is not named Jesus' fingerprints are all over it. But yes, there is an example for us in many of these things throughout, especially books like Esther, where someone stands in as a a type, a foreshadowing of Christ. And we can look to these people, we can be inspired, and we can find great wisdom in them. I think one thing we see here is the convergence of divine sovereignty, God's plan being at work, and human agency, what we do. It's very easy to fall all the way to one side or the other. Everything that I do, I determine. If I'm going to be saved, it's because I'm going to say the right things, pray the right prayer, believe the right things, walk in the right path, live the right life, or to go the other side and say, well, if God has it all sealed up from before the foundation of the earth, it doesn't matter what I do or say or think or how I live. We find here in the book of Esther an understanding amongst God's people that these two things work in concert. They're not at odds with one another. That God is at work, and so we must be at work. And how much more is that true for the Christian? Where Jesus said to His disciples on the mount, at the very end, before He ascended to the right hand of the Father, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always even to the very end of the age. We read through the rest of the New Testament again and again how it's God who causes growth, it's God who brings repentance, it's God who grants faith as a gift, and yet it is us who proclaim the gospel. And the gospel being preached, that is the instrumental means of people coming to faith. We need to see, just like Esther eventually did when Mordecai kind of did the dad thing and said, listen, I'm gonna give you some tough love. This may be why this is all happening. So you can shine. So you can be our mode of escape. So that God can work mightily through you. And she understood if God is at work, it will be through one of us. It may be through me, and ultimately, indeed, it was. Making a stand then for God, we must be like Esther, fearless. If we're speaking for the Lord, we cannot waffle, we can't go back and forth, we can't couch things too much. We can't say, well, the world's not going to like this. In fact, if, if I were to go back through my message today, there's probably a good quarter of it that I should remove if I wanted to please the world and say things that aren't going to be politic, things that, that aren't going to be uh, very well-liked or, or seen as very loving from the world's definition, I better remove them. But I understand that God's love is so much deeper than our shallow understanding of love. And God's truth is so much more foundational it's a bedrock it's unchanging unlike our shifting sand definitions of lowercase t truth and so we have to stand on the promises stand on the word of god we're told in the scriptures that that if we are even to stand before kings and governors the spirit will give us the words to say to speak boldly and throughout the book of acts that's what we see the apostles doing and when we see esther Stop compromising and going all in on this plan to save Israel. She goes all in. She takes a stand. And when she does, God is there at her right hand. She is not left alone standing before the king. Yet even then, wise and winsome words, careful words, are important. Controlling our tongues is an emphasis throughout the New Testament. Being careful how we say what we say. Because, again, when you look at the way that Esther doles out the information to the king, it's not, here's everything at once. Don't you feel like a jerk? Because she's she's, she knows she's dealing with kind of a, an adolescent in a king's body. right? She knows she's dealing with someone who will rage out and kill people and do things that he later regrets. We've already seen that in the book of Esther. And as you read and you say, wait, another banquet? another banquet what are you doing what are you waiting for has she lost her nerve or what as we continue reading we see she hasn't lost anything she was waiting for the right time and and when the time comes she doesn't just spill it all and we go come on are you going to lose your nerve again are you going to tell him you want another banquet and we realize no she's being very careful about how she presents what she presents another little gem from Proverbs Proverbs 25:15 With patience a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone Patience and gentle speech lost arts in the age of Twitter even or maybe especially amongst Christians and I think that is a sad indicator of the state of the church Living now as we do in a post-Christian America those who follow Jesus We'll need more and more to rely on this kind of wisdom and discernment, to know what to say, when to speak and when to be silent, how to say what we say. We will find these events laid out in Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah, descriptions of the Persian exiles more and more familiar. It already feels in some sense like we're in the book of Esther because just like in that book, God has been kind of written out of our society where he was. And we say well how then do we connect with people and the answer is carefully choosing our words wisely asking god to guide us the spirit to give us the words to say and there are times when led by the spirit you might walk walk up to a stranger just sight unseen and give them the whole gospel all at once i've heard of people getting saved that way i've heard of a number of people that that's their method of evangelism but more often I think an Esther-like wisdom and self-control and actual building of an actual relationship has a better effect. As we read in Ecclesiastes, there's a time to speak and a time to be silent. There's a time to offer a gentle word and a time for a firm rebuke. To be gentle with people, to be plain about sin. I think this is the opposite of what we do in the church today. We equivocate about sin and we want to we say safe things, but then we are vicious with people. Look at the way that Esther, in her words to the king, remains respectful and humble, but her words to and about Haman are very plain. She spoke to her audience specifically. She didn't memorize some, some general thing that you say to kings when you want them to do. She didn't read how to win kings and influence emperors or something? No, she said, I know this man. He's my husband. How do I say to him what I need to say to him to convey this truth to him? Because all of this is riding on what I say. There's so much on the line. Compare that with Haman, who didn't stop to think how he might be perceived when he fell all over Esther. We don't want to be like Haman, to state the obvious. She made it personal in how she framed it. This reminds me very much of Mars Hill, when the Apostle Paul stood up amongst scholars and poets and philosophers galore and he said let me talk to you about the unknown god you guys know what i'm talking about right you've got an altar down there here in athens it says to an unknown god and since i see that you are all in every way religious let me tell you about that god that you worship in ignorance i will tell you all about him so you might worship him in knowledge and he begins to use their own poets their own quotes their own wisdom to show them the truth. He knew his audience and he stepped into that situation saying, I will connect with them. He could have just started preaching Old Testament stuff. He could have gone back to what he learned in rabbinical school and said, I am going to give them the truth knuckles first. But instead he said, how can I connect with them? How can I do it wisely? I don't think you can say to someone today, are you saved? You know who talks like that? People who are saved. Like, it's like when you say, are you asleep? You can't say yes, or you're lying, right? Are you saved? What does that mean? I don't know. I remember hearing that in VBS in 1987, so yes, I guess I'm saved. The world today doesn't have any sense that they need to be saved. And so why would it matter to them? You know, it'd be like if in, in 2019, you said, you know, I found out my whole family is positive. Someone would say, great, stay positive. Yeah, that's what you want. That's important. Today we hear that and say, oh, wow, there's, there's a problem. Because there is there's something hanging over us right now. In the same way, you first have to explain to someone, yes, we've been sold into death. And Jesus came and paid that price by dying on a cross. You have to explain why you need to be saved before you even address whether or not someone is. And I think following Esther is a great example here. Not long ago, somebody on on Twitter asked for people's most controversial theological hot takes. And a friend of mine said, my hot take is this, Esther is not the story about a heroine that we should try and emulate, but about a bad example that we should try to avoid. And man, people piled on him and he deserved it. But... uh, I tell you what, having gotten through half of this study and having read this book beginning to end so many times in recent months, if I could have a tiny fraction of her wisdom and her boldness and her courage exercised as exiles in the midst of of hostile people, I'd give almost anything for it. I think perhaps there is a little bit in the church going back of, I want to say, anti-female sentiment that might play into this. You say, come on, you're dragging this into the the current age. Well, Go back to the mid-fourth century. St. Jerome was criticized for dedicating his books to women. He wrote this, These people do not know that while Barak trembled, Deborah saved Israel, that Esther delivered from supreme peril the children of God. Is it not to women that our Lord appeared after his resurrection? Yes, and the men could then blush for not having sought what the women had found. And yes, Esther gains the throne by her beauty in the book of Esther, but her wisdom and courage are how she overshadows every other character in the book, and her wisdom and courage are why she will be forever remembered. Seems that she, in her royal capacity, makes up for what her ancestor Saul did wrong. We looked at that too, the situation with Agag and how he compromised and how he then lost God's spirit and anointing and lost the throne ultimately because of it. Esther does not compromise. She does not drop the ball. She bows and submits to God and does what is needed. And and we've emphasized throughout the book that early in this story, Esther is far from perfect. Don't walk away from this saying, Esther will save me. She won't. Jesus will save you. She conceals her allegiance to the God Jehovah and her place among his covenant people from the beginning. She does it because Mordecai says so, but she's the queen. She should do what is right. By acquiescing to this whole enterprise and entering into his household and into his harem, what does she do but compromise her Jewish identity and her holiness? If she's not saying, I'm sorry, I'm kosher, I can't eat that, 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 and that, that means that she is not being kosher. She is unclean according to the ceremonial law. She's compromising her faith. Compare that to Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who said, can't eat this. Bring us just vegetables. It's the only thing you've got here that we can eat, and then check and see if we're not as strong as everybody else after a few weeks. They insisted on remaining kosher, praying publicly, and all the rest, and they paid a price for it, ultimately. Esther wasn't willing at first to pay the price. But then, when the time came, she was. She repented of all this. And I can relate to Esther then. Not so much because of her her royal standing and legendary good looks, not just because of that anyway, but because I have compromised too. I have failed to stand up boldly for my God and his truth when there was a cost involved, even when it was just a social cost. And maybe you have as well. But Jesus seems to love restoring, redeeming, and using people for his glory who have fallen People like us, people like Peter, who, who hid his identity and said, no, 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 I'm not, his, I'm not his follower. I've never met the man. Even with an oath, swearing, I don't even know who he, I don't know that guy. I don't know that Jesus. Men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who were followers of Christ, but in secret. And then when it came time where they had to choose, do we cast our boats for or against him? They had to come out of the closet as believers of Jesus. And at the end, it was Joseph of Arimathea who went to the governor and said, I want that guy buried in my tomb because I won't see his body desecrated, just thrown for the dogs to tear apart. Recognize, if you follow Jesus, that reversals are the norm. And when we are following him and we are counting the cost and we say, I don't know if I can do it, Lord, remember that all of the reversals in the book of Esther are leading up to the great reversal of the cross and the empty tomb. When God becomes man... And perfect man becomes sin. And death becomes life. And remember that in a world of reversals, in the world of following Jesus, the worst thing is never the last thing. I think that's incredibly important for us to hold on to. Reading the book of Esther, and you don't know the end, you pretend you don't know the end, and you can see how they would give up all hope. But following our God, the worst thing is never the last thing. And so if you say, oh... Look at my life right now. This is the worst. Take heart. It's not the end. Keep on reading this story. Keep on going. Get to the book of Revelation and see how it really ends. It's been said, you know, this is a a comedy, technically, because it starts with tragedy and then things all work out by the end. They call that a comedy in in classical categories. But it's been said the the difference between a, a comedy and a tragedy is just when you stop telling the story. Right? Even stories that end with and they lived happily ever after, you could keep going until he died. Right? I mean, there's always more. Well, the opposite is true in the Christian life. There's always more and at the end is glory. At the end is communion with God. At the end is all being made new and every tear being wiped away and a new heaven and a new earth. Keep reading this story. Recognizing that our God is a God of great reversals. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great reversal here in Esther chapter 7. We thank you that when all seems lost, God steps in. And when we are at our lowest and most empty handed and humblest, you come and pick us up. That, Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sins, but sent your Son Jesus to come out of love, and become sin on our behalf, that we might be the righteousness of God. Lord, we pray that being the recipients of that kind of grace and mercy, we would continue to show grace and mercy to everyone in our lives. We pray that we would be far more like Esther and Mordecai than like Haman, but more than that, we pray that we would be like Jesus. We pray that we would look out at a world that is lost, and rather than being disgusted like Jesus, we would be moved by compassion. How can I show love and compassion? How can I help someone? How can I feed someone who's hungry and clothe someone who's naked? How can I go to the hospitals and prisons and bring hope and light into dark places? Lord, we know that Jesus emphasized all of this. We pray that as we serve a God of reversals, we would expect to see them in our life and in the lives of others. The Lord, we would not write anyone off or any situation off, but know there is nothing beyond the reach of a perfectly omnipotent God. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.